Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing purpose-driven development teams for you tech leaders out there so that you can focus on the creative aspects of your role instead of firefighting and running around like headless chickens. And your host today is moi, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm gabbling away from the UK in what we like to call the big smoke, i.e. London. And in this episode, we're going to talk to Charles Griffith on his tech leader's journey from gaming industry to working at Amazon in the formative years and then to a startup and finally an exit. So let's welcome our guest from Seattle, USA, Charles Griffith. Come on down. So let's welcome our guest, Charles. How are you, Charles? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I think the thank yous are on us, actually, Charles. It's great to have somebody with such an interesting and varied career like yourself on our podcast. And just for our audience out there, where are you located in the world? I'm in Seattle, Washington. Excellent. Good, good. So we were kind of discussing earlier on, you know, your, your experience and, and the way you've kind of navigated your career. Uh, you obviously have lots of experience. In, so in terms of moving around these various verticals, uh, these kind of various industries, I mean, what would you say is the importance of, of designing your career the way you have? Did you design it as such? <laughs> well, I think when you start out early on in your career, you don't realize how long your career is going to be if you're lucky. And so um, in my case, I started out in games and I really kind of considered that that's what I would be doing for uh, my entire career. However, I think by the time you, you, know, you start to hit 30, First of all, games is a, a very young industry where right. you start to feel very old as you get to uh, about 30. Uh, and it, it forces you to kind of uh, do some introspection. But I think in general, most people, when they're in their 30s, start to think about what am I going to do? Am I going to continue or am I going to branch out? In my case, I realized it was it was a very narrow thing to be focused on. Although, you know, we were at a time when I was doing this where new game consoles were coming a lot of money was coming into the industry at that time. Right. But I, I, I knew in kind of instinctively that I wanted to ultimately build my own company at some point. In fact, I'd done that with uh, games a couple of times, not successfully, but uh, I'd made the attempt. And it's uh, such a, you know, seasonal industry that it's very difficult to, to build that as a, a lasting company. But it was enough to, to kind of give me the insight that I needed to branch out and uh, augment my skills and, and basically get experience in different industries and really become more multifaceted. And that's that's why I basically started to move into other areas like encryption, like CAD, you know, kind of more of the scientific side of uh, computing. Okay. Moving on, you know, into payments uh, intentionally to get you know, a completely different side of, of what you would need to, to build a complete business, more of that finance, finance aspect. And then finally, getting interested in logistics and moving on to Amazon. Yes. Uh, it stayed much longer than I probably intended to initially. Wait, what, at the games uh, organization or Amazon? No, I started in at Amazon in 2006. I went in intentionally for logistics uh, I had actually done some work uh, with a startup that I put together in Los Angeles before moving up here to Seattle for Amazon that was all about um, providing a, a CRM for manufacturing of uh, garments. And that had gotten me uh, very interested in logistics and kind of the realization that there were areas that were unconquered by computers, right? right. A lot of things done very manually, uh, done in parts of the world like Mexico at that point before things had shifted to, to China that were, you know, in cultures where there was no investment in technology and where there was an opportunity really to kind of automate the entire supply chain. I knew enough to know I didn't know anything and <laughs> uh, figured, you know, this small startup called Amazon that was currently about $28 a share, if you can believe it, would be a good place to learn. And so I went in in transportation and I stayed in transportation the entire time I was there full eight 
And so uh, in terms of, for example, the gaming, um, it, it sounded like it was a very conscious choice. I, so did you have a kind of an idea of your career or where you wanted to gonna get to? Um, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm hoping this kind of question helps the, the CTO, uh, CTOs out there and aspiring kind of technical leaders. Do they need to design their career as such? I think there, there are various ways to, to get to where you're ultimately going to find success. Some people are lucky enough you know, to start out uh, as a kid being uh, skewed towards a, a particular um, direction. In my case, uh, I ended up in games very intentionally because uh, at 10th grade, my, my parents had said, you can either have an Apple II Plus or you can have a, a base and amp. And fortunately, I chose the Apple II Plus because now I can buy <laughs> an unlimited amount of base amps. Yes. At that particular point, I knew that I wanted to, to do something uh, along the lines of games because that's what was interesting as a 10th grader. Yes. And in fact, um, put out something with my mom who's an educator in, in 11th grade that was in computer stores and so forth for educational games. And so I really got a taste of what it was like to build an end-to-end product. And I think that I carried that on through college uh, and was lucky enough to find a, a position with Microprose uh, building games out of school. You know, there's so many variables. A lot, a lot is about luck as well yes. as you know intentional direction. In terms of you say luck, I am. Um, I guess if if you're prepared and. And, and with the right kind of mindset, that, that kind of luck kind of falls your way. Um, I, I, I'm not talking about any kind of woo-woo stuff here, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's you're kind of ready to take the opportunities because, you know, uh, you've, you've maybe kind of picked up some stuff on some kind of uh, uh, ideas of a subject that you want to head into, you know, so you're kind of able to have those conversations. I, I think you certainly prepare and you make your own luck to some degree. In fact, my first job, you know, looking at, at where we are today, you know, in terms of the economic collapse worldwide. I came out in 87, which was a a terrible recession in the U.S. And, you know, I was basically trying to get a position coming out of uh, with a comp sci degree. Um, I spent a lot of time in uh, banks uh, up until my graduation, preparing for at least getting a computer science position by hook or crook. But I continued to to hammer uh, gaming companies uh, to try and find out what it was that I needed to get in there. And finally, it turned out that, uh, you know, simply having an Amiga, if you can remember, <laughs> yes, uh, having an Amiga and saying I could program an Amiga happened to be what was necessary to get in because they needed an Amiga developer. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to get in and, and do my first game just because. Yes. But it, you're right. It's an educated process, right? You, it didn't just, it's not like winning the lottery. You have to take steps, intentional steps to, to get to where you want to be. That's right. And, uh, and just, I'm kind of curious around the game. Was it a good game? <laughs> no, I, I basically would say that almost all of my games were terrible, uh, <laughs> especially, especially through today's lens. But, uh, you know, we did we did uh, a number of them with very cool licenses. We actually had the Marvel license at uh, this particular company that I was at. And uh, one of the games that I am proud of was a, an X-Men game that uh, I got to do the entire design and implementation and, and built that with a small team. So, you know, it's great when you can pull some of your other interests and I always love comics. Um, I turned down my opportunity to uh, speak to Stan Lee because I didn't want to be that guy that, uh, you know, hammers questions as a fan and I've regretted it ever since. Oh, no. And and so in terms of the time that you were doing this kind of game, because I'm quite interested in what, what knowledge you pick up uh, from these different kind of areas that you've worked in. So from gaming, what did that give your career? Was there, was there any kind of gems that you picked up there? Yes, actually, uh, gaming is is what I would say was ahead of the rest of the industry. You know, in the early 90s, we were still at a point where, you know, computing and, and uh, development was very corporate. You know, you had large teams and I think it almost parallels um, a, a number of other things that were happening in culture with uh, more of a, a DIY approach. Games was very much a small team kind of industry. And so now that's a very commonplace thing, right? To have small teams and- Agile scrum, yeah. Exactly, and, and organize around disparate uh, members of the team. You know, we had artists uh, in basically a scrum with uh, a set of engineers. 
you had different backgrounds, you had different uh, specialties, some were great with graphics, some were great with just pure uh, engineering aspects. And that just that kind of diversity and disparity in a small group uh, focused on a very aggressive goal. And we were, you know, everything in games is about hitting Christmas, which means you would have to be ready by, uh, you know, late August at the at the very worst. And so you're yes. moving at a very fast pace with a very unified vision with a very small team. And I, I've carried that kind of lens throughout my career. And I, I find that to be, you know, the perfect thing to scale, to think in terms of units of small, diverse teams with clear ownership and, and very concise goals. That is, I've got to admit, Charles, that is music to my ears to hear that. So that, that's great. So the, so you, you understood the kind of essence of good teamwork to, to deliver good stuff. Um, and, and in that part of the career, was you was you kind of leading these teams at that point? Yeah, I think uh, by default, you know, you kind of evolve and, and go towards what you're capable of doing. I've always right. been opinionated. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, there are a lot of people that would, would rather be passengers than leaders. And yes. uh, that's good for a team. You don't want too many people pulling in different directions. But I found as I've gone on later in my career, especially with Amazon, where you have a lot of very um, intense uh, experts and they really, you know, that's like moving from, say, a college team to an MBA team. Right. They're recruiting nothing but superstars. And so you have to find a way to work with those very senior teams as well. Yeah. um, I think it comes back to how do you give up ownership? whether it's at an individual level or whether it's at a collective level with the, the small team. And again, that's that's another critical learning that I learned a lot by my early forays into management uh, and, and basically leadership. You, you learn a lot in terms of you cannot set the, you know, the total direction. What you can do is you can set the vision as a yep. leader. Uh, as a manager, you can set the goals and you can set, you know, you can manage the individuals to those goals. But there's yes. different concepts. And as you scale, you want to move from that very directive uh, level to a, you know, to a level where you can deliver a product. And that requires stepping back and taking advantage of the full team, which I find people can't do. So you've obviously, by the sounds of it, have kind of mastered that. That kind of, you're kind of the Jedi master of being able to get, get large sets of teams uh, working together. So what would you say the essence of what you do is what works? Well, I, I think different things work in different scenarios. So I, I think a lot of times what you have to do is be very pragmatic and dynamic in terms of how you approach a situation. Um, it's again, I, I hate to use sports paradigms, but they fit so so appropriately. <laughs> As you look at coaches that go in, there are different types of coaches. There's some coaches that go in with a set blueprint and a, a set of plans and an approach uh, that they try to instill no matter what the team is. And that's successful in some cases because the organization will hire to that particular leader. But when, you're, when you look at the kinds of uh, coaches and the leaders that I like, they can take different, completely different organizations and they can turn them into a success. And they really look at that from a a variety of different levels. They look at it from personnel, they look at the problems they're solving, and they look at the business need. And then they go back and and refactor the organization to accomplish that business need. Right. Meeting it wherever it is right now and and seeing what needs to happen. So so in terms of you uh, helping and working these organizations, do you you allow the kind of the the teams to kind of have their voice of what they think needs to happen in a particular way? You give them the problem, uh, or the vision of where you want to get to and say, how would you do it? Is that is that how you would? I think you set up different types of evaluations, right? Whether whether it's something like uh, the tools that the teams are going to use to operate, the way that I like to do it is, is more of a, a ground level where we experiment with a variety of different tools or techniques. And then ultimately, as a group, we decide on what works. Uh, you can't support everything. You can't you know, go in all directions, whether it's uh, to accomplish a particular problem. But the best way is to, to take um, the greatest common denominator. And that requires the engagement of the entire team. You know, sometimes the most junior member of the team or the person that that's overlooked in other organizations may be the one that, that makes the biggest difference or provides an insight um, based on their, their perspective that others would overlook. 
so I think it's important to engage from the ground up and to ultimately you as the leader have to set the direction, right? You can't continue to experiment and, and spiral forever uh, because that's ineffective and, and ultimately inefficient, but you should time box it and whatever it is, whether it's tools, whether it's a decision on, on solving a problem or whether it's an architectural decision, whatever it is, that, that pattern seems to work very effectively in my experience. Excellent. Hopefully that's uh, really helpful advice to, to our uh, leaders out there. So in terms of the, the other areas that you've worked, what would you say are the other big things that you picked up from, from your kind of career path that you would like to say, this is something that you really need to consider? Well, I think the, the hardest thing is changing the culture, right? I think that's one of the things that I experienced as I went into different uh, aspects of my career. For example, one of the places that I uh, moved into at a certain point was with First Data Western Union uh, running payment gateways. And we actually went through two different culture shifts. So the first one uh, was basically LinkPoint had been a huge platform built to support a number of sales agents selling basically uh, processing, credit card processing. And it was a technology platform early on supporting, you know, large uh, brokers of, of merchants like Earthlink and, you know, just dozens and what was it, about 100,000 small merchants at that point and had a very, uh, very strange culture in the sense that there were a lot of eclectic people, just like you see in a typical startup that evolves and has some success. Uh, so first of all, finding out how to, to turn that into more of a, a machine for delivery as opposed to, you know, just a, a one trick pony that was successful to a certain point in time, which meant, you know, effectively changing the way that the software development worked, the way that the team was scaled to support customers, and the way that the uh, software is developed. At a certain point, First Data merged with a company called uh, Concord. And that brought in another company uh, that did payments uh, processing, but did it for TCP IP terminals. So whereas you had all of this internet processing and uh, kind of a different type of terminal that was uh, built specifically for kind of emerging processing for small merchants, you had this other side of the uh, this other company that came in called EFSNet, which was built for uh, processing transactions for McDonald's, Subway, and a whole nother variety of, of customer. And uh, they basically handed me both companies and said, merge these. Wow. One was primarily a Java shop. One was, uh, you know, a .NET shop. One was a, a company that uh, was even more immature than the one that I'd inherited initially and was built around a single individual who uh, effectively owned and parceled out work like a dictator. So, you know, breaking that deadlock and, and finding a way to combine these two teams became a, a you know, a critical path towards uh, ultimately allowing us to, to become one of the biggest processors for internet payments. Wow. I mean, that sounds uh, a pretty spectacular clash of uh different ways of doing stuff so um just to clarify that so there was a technology clash as well as a a kind of culture clash yep and of course both teams were fighting for uh control instead of understanding that the combined you know the combined entity would be stronger so with that that aspect um there was the aspect of effectively um making the uh, acquired organization more effective at the same time merging them um, by, you know, effectively going through with each individual in that organization and saying, you're no longer in the small pond. Now you can be a much bigger player in a, a larger organization and, uh, you know, appealing to, to their um, desire to, to succeed at a large level. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, a lot of interpersonal uh, battles. And then there were, you know, just a tremendous number of technical challenges to build a, a platform that got the best out of both of those uh, without losing customers as we did it. Absolutely. It's uh, got to hit the ground running and everything's moving. So uh, I'm kind of curious. So there's kind of two aspects. There's the technology side and, and the kind of interpersonal as you describe it. So how did you kind of deal with the interpersonal side? Because that's the complexity of organizations. You're dealing with these really complex things called human beings, you know. Um, <laughs> how, how, how did you kind of deal with that? Where was your starting point? Your starting point is with each individual. So I don't believe in, uh, you know, 
hierarchies. I believe in hierarchies to execute, but I don't believe in hierarchies to understand your organization. The best way to, to really approach it is to understand each of the individuals. Now, as the organization gets bigger and bigger, it's tougher to do, but making the time to at least you know, have some face-to-face -face with all levels of your organization, regardless of role, is critical. Uh, it gets buy-in, it gets you some insights into what the motivation is, and it also gives you some insights into, you know, what are the what are the challenges that you're not going to see on paper, but you'll hear resonate in each of those one-on-ones. So I think that's the first place you start. Beautiful. And um, so it sounds like once uh, this kind of merging happened, uh, you, you spent quite a lot of time up front building up that uh, social capital, that kind of relationship uh, capital in the organization. Quite an investment in time. Well, I think you have to do that when you when you take on a new team. You need to understand what they do well, where the deficiencies are. And those can be gaps, you know, just because there hasn't been investment in the, the team. So there can be whole areas that are nascent that you have to uh, effectively plan for. So generally that's required to to just kind of do a, a level set of what is the organiz organization state right now and where does it need to be over the next three, six, nine months. Excellent. And from a technical perspective, so in my head, I've got kind of software on one side and then the kind of physical hardware, uh, being an electronic engineer in the past and an embedded, I kind of get the kind of uh, complexities of, of both. Uh, how did you how did you go about uh, dealing with that kind of merger? Yeah, so we also had at that time, a lot of companies were moving to data centers, right? We were at uh, Exodus in Texas, which was, you know, collapsing. Uh, so there were data center moves on the physical hardware for the terminals and so forth. That was one of the first things that we worked on separating so that yeah. effectively that was that went to a hardware division. Um, that's something where you can basically work off specs and you can separate that level of complexity. So my organization was all about the uh, software engineering. So everything from, you know, effectively providing the software that ran on those terminals to the software that that hosted the uh, overall gateway for, you know, e-commerce as well. And in terms of the the output from from this this kind of merger, uh, was it plain sailing? Was it was it uh, were there kind of any kind of big gotchas that that uh, would be good to share? There were a lot of big gotchas. So one <laughs> of the organizations that didn't report into me was the uh, database administrators, and they were betting against the uh, success of this project all the way up to the time of launch. And so it was uh, a near catastrophic event uh, for them. And so we had, um, I think one of the outputs was I ended up having for my cost center a week-long conference call. 24 by seven for five days. Wow. Yes, mitigating and resolving issues. Um, so that kind of taught me the importance of, of uh, leadership and, and organizations from the top down because this separation of ownership uh, and the hierarchy that was built was ineffective. It, it separated sales from software engineering from database. Uh, right. It had three distinct uh, C-level representatives that had their own challenges, and that of, for, that of course manifested itself when we did this rollout. But uh, I think the biggest takeaways, just at a, a very esoteric level, are are you have to be ready for failure, you have to be prepared for it, and you have to be ready for any type of disaster recovery event, even if you think it's highly unlikely to happen. Yes. And the more of that planning you can do up front, when it happens, you can execute quickly and, and reduce the impact. Yes. Uh, so I think that's that's probably one of the biggest ones that really resonates from that. It does sound quite challenging, especially if you've got a uh, part of your so you know team uh, betting against you, you know, kind of, uh, that's quite a challenging situation. So um, I've kind of looking at my notes here and, uh, you know, the kind of Amazon, you're an Amazonian, you know, uh, mm -hmm. an ex-Amazonian. Uh, and that obviously kind of picks up a lot of people's ears because this is a company that's kind of gone from strength to strength in, in, in lots of different uh, arenas. One of the areas that, you know, uh, that I'm kind of interested in is, uh, you know, Amazon are always kind of breaking into new markets. You, you worked on the logistics side, as you mentioned. So in terms of, um, you know, the platforms that you created there, what kind of architecture did you use there? Well, it was interesting. Uh, you know, 2006 doesn't seem that far <laughs> back. But at yeah. that particular point, you know, we still were 
at a point where we had some monolithic stacks. Uh, for example, the checkout uh, was just being uh, split. In fact, um, Rick Dezel, who was the uh, kind of the visionary for this at the uh, C-level, wrote a uh, paper called To Infinity and Beyond, which really set the, uh, the vision for having um, service-oriented architectures and for uh, creating the, the concept of a pizza team, which people have heard over and over again, a pizza team being a small team, you know, two pizza team, you know, the, the number of people that could consume two pizzas. So in some uh, cases, that can even be an individual, uh, I'm sure, yeah. you know. <laughs> so there's yeah. no, no arbitrary number of people that uh, could comprise this, but the idea being that, you know, you needed smaller uh, software services that basically work together so that we didn't have this bottleneck for deployments and we didn't have this bottleneck in terms of um, how things were built and the complexity of trying to organize just hundreds of people into yes. uh, you know a single delivery. So as I was saying before, very much like a DIY culture, right? You, you now start to split those apart. You say the shipping service will now go to this team and they'll own this functionality. And, and really your interaction with other teams becomes, uh, you know, by interface. And right. uh, you start to, these services started to take on the, um, the personalities of the teams, in fact, in many cases. And right. so, um, you know, all kinds of different, different uh, decisions were made by those leaders. Everything from availability to you know the service complexity that they would support and the interfaces and how they would internally organize those services to support their customers. Right. You know, part of part of that culture and that that change, which was really revolutionary, was making a decision of what you would support and what you wouldn't support and how you would negotiate that with other teams because many times, you know, that functionality that you're turning away has to go somewhere. So you have to convince another team to take it on. So it was wow. a very interesting time uh, in parallel to the to this exercise. There was a huge set of uh, kind of company-wide technology projects, uh, one called availability, which measured the service health. It started with the latency for the website because, you know, the page latency was actually tied to a, a cost opportunity. In other words, if it took two seconds to render a page like the detail page in Amazon, there's a tremendous cost from abandonment by uh, customers. Yes. Yes. And so a lot of that was being measured towards, you know, what, what services need to, need to uh, either A, make an architectural change or B, make a, a scaling change to essentially bring that down and that was one aspect of the program. The second was actually uh, outage time. Right. And so this created almost a Star Wars-like council where all of the <laughs> teams had to report once a week. Uh, and there was a, a tribunal process for reviewing outages. And during that time, it was interesting to see the culture move from punitive to more of a, how do we fix this? Because obviously each team needs to survive and be successful for the overall uh, Amazon health. And yes. so it's a very interesting time, a very interesting uh, way of changing thinking and, and thoughts around building very large teams. And I think it's played a part into Amazon's ability to scale to, you know, to the point it is now. Yes. So I can imagine what inheriting working on this monolith where do you start with something like that? Did you kind of like, I don't know, make a model of it and then smash it up, you know, and then and then see which pieces, what ones you want you're going to work on? Well, actually, it was it, it's even more interesting than that. So <laughs> right. you start with the team. So I was in transportation. So there were a number of different operations teams, uh, technology teams that, that roll up that focus on operations. Operations supports the worldwide network of fulfillment centers, uh, if you look back in 2006. Right. They had a, a smaller footprint, a smaller number of countries, smaller number of, of areas. So there is a, a team that supported all of the fulfillment software, uh, which were peers of mine. Um, we supported all of the transportation uh, for delivery. So that and also inbound into those fulfillment centers. And so it really started like that, where we were not tier one. In other words, we weren't directly uh, tied to the website's um, availability. 
Now, as you moved into Prime and you started to move into uh, particular ship options that were tied to speed, those obviously were also tied to the capabilities and availability of transportation at a, a particular point, uh, whether that was at a global level or whether that was at a uh, local level for one of the fulfillment centers servicing a particular area. So we went through this journey of First of all, how do we make commercial carriers more effective to support Prime? And then we started to get services that weren't really transportation, but were the flip side of that, that were part of the website. So you started to have, we first of all got the uh, shipping engine, which uh, provides all of those ship options that are surfaced in the checkout pipeline and also support the uh, detail level prices on the, um, you know, on those detail pages. And then we started to add other services like address validation and others. So we really became a very complex uh, unit. And I think that that complexity and breadth was part of what allowed us to really move forward to, to go beyond uh, providing you know, commercial carriers and small carrier transportation to rethinking Amazon as a carrier. Okay, that's quite interesting. You talked about high-performing architectures here, and then kind of fragmenting the uh, the thing from a monolith to these kind of microservices. Would you, was that would be that the right term? Um, yeah, I, I mean, Pizza Teams owned a set of services that were organized based on kind of a collection that fit together. Address yeah. validation is a good example. So, if I was talking about address validation, uh, which you would think of as well, I'm just going to check an address and see whether it works. Actually, behind the scenes, you have a, a complex series of technology that can be everything from uh, artificial intelligence to, to translate what the, the users actually meant as they typed in that text right. to, you know, systems that are equating that to a, a physical address and ultimately perhaps a geocode. So all of those technology services uh, were owned by a single team. They would own the end services that were uh, provided out to say the website or or backend services that we're trying to validate addresses and all of the internal architecture to make that happen. And and the negotiation of how you modify the interfaces between the different microservices uh, and uh, the expected uh, outcome of that that request to that interface. How was that kind of managed? That's that's actually a, an excellent question because. One of the, the primary reasons for moving to this model is decoupling, right? When you think of a monolithic stack, it's coupled together and everything has to change in one version uh, and everything has to, to work. Now, when you talk about uh, microservices, you can have multiple versions and you can start to have independent release schedules and, you know, you can deprecate the, the availability of a particular service, but you do that based on, uh, negotiating with other teams because they all have schedules and also based on on your own capabilities, right? Because there's a cost of maintaining something. It could mm. be a, a cost based on the, the data store you're using to, to retain that information. It could be based on, you know, having two near identical services and having a, a higher traffic count and therefore cost for a service call. I'm just kind of imagining how how when you version up a particular service, which then has to be able to talk to the rest of the services that might not have uh, had to upgrade, um, there's going to be uh, potential uh, variations in behavior and timing, you know? Um, so it, in terms of uh, the environments you test this on, obviously you don't put it out to production straight or do you put it out to production straight away and see how it goes? <laughs> well, that, that's a good way to end up in that availability uh, review that I mentioned before. Uh, and right. it's really, it certainly happened where people would go through environments, promotion environments too quickly and cause outages. You're right that that part of uh, part of what you're doing is is checking the functional uh, performance of the, the service or the APIs that your service owns. The other thing that you're doing is making sure that it's scaled accordingly. And so we had uh, multiple environments at Amazon. Most people would would use uh, kind of a, a development environment, and yeah. that could almost be, you know, a desktop version of, of the uh, particular environment that they're they're testing for. Then there was a staging environment, which, uh, depending on on what you're building for, for example, for the website, it's a, a replica of of the uh, website, but it may be in a variety of different states, right? Because you have right. this wild west of everyone testing at very intervals. Then there was a process for promoting to production. 
one of the brilliant things that Amazon uh, put together was the idea of web labbing. And now a number of different companies do this. But for things like treatments on the website, you know, they would create multiple variations of how, how much traffic were sent to an, a treatment. And this became a way for, for a website-facing service to, you know, be introduced at a lower risk. And you could look for things like fatals, uh, or you could look at, at things like various exceptions that are being triggered based on that particular treatment and turn it off. Wow. In other environments like um, our fulfillment environments, we didn't necessarily have that degree of, of flexibility, but we would do things like run in shadow mode where we would send traffic to the old set of services and the new one if it was a, a drastically different version. And that's a yeah. concept that I think you know most of us uh, you know, for production software do. Uh, yes. We do that at mile zero. From a kind of technological perspective and ex-engineering me, um, you know, I've managed to de-geek to some extent. I'm quite fascinated how you kind of, you know, you're obviously developing this stuff and then you've got different versions running and then being able to root and see, you know, there's a lot of data there and a lot of uh, reporting and a lot of kind of understanding what the hell's going on. Right. <laughs> how do you kind of manage that? <laughs> well, I, think, I think, again, it comes down to roles and ownership. In some cases, you have these these teams that are basically owning a very precise set of services and, and you know, have a very specific charter. And then as a company, you're going to start to in introduce roles. Um, yeah. For example, security is one of the common ones, right? You don't want customer information leaked into logs or you don't want to exchange through services that could be breached, et cetera. So you start to introduce, you know, specialized uh, role players or teams that are going to evaluate those things. Uh, I'm not not big myself on, on QA organizations. I've had them in the past. I prefer to have engineering organizations that can self-test and build automation suites and build means of, of continuous testing so that you can yes. do continuous integration. Uh, but there are people that have a different bias for how they look at something and do a better job of testing than others. Uh, so using those people effectively and distributing them through teams so that, again, you have a diversity of skills in those teams and, and you start to manage to a particular set of expectations. I think that's another way self-governing has to work, right? You have to set those expectations and put some of that ownership yes. on and onus on the teams. Yes, excellent. And, and a following question from, uh, from your time at Amazon, was there any kind of particular platforms, processes or tools that you would uh, recommend as part of that journey that you went through? Well, that's a, there's so many levels to that question. I'll start by saying Amazon, prior to Amazon, almost every company I was at universally, the worst engineers would end up in the tools group. When I got to Amazon, it was completely different. They actually had some of the, the best engineers you, you could ever imagine. And those engineers were so multifaceted they went into building a lot of what ended up being AWS, right? So we, wow. we actually, that that concept of AWS was uh, consumed internally for Amazon's own services prior to being released to the public. And so that kind of talks to how that tools group and that, that engineering organization grew and, and built a commercial service out of something that normally would just service the engineers in that organization. So... Certainly, I recommend AWS. Uh, <laughs> we use AWS. We also use Google and Azure as well. And I think you have to build a, a certain level of, of agnostic migratability to your services because costs will change. And we will get into cloud wars at some point where a lot of the common services will be easily switchable, like web hosting and storage. But at the same time, I, I do believe Amazon's way out in front in terms of building a production ready service that scales. Excellent. I love that term that you just used there, cloud wars, you know? <laughs> I love the Star Wars kind of references. Right? I love it. Kind of science fiction reference. But yes, I, I think we're, you know, I'm actually kind of surprised that Google isn't further along in terms of building kind of a super switcher to be able to take some of this business from both uh, Amazon and Google, or rather Azure to the Google cloud. Yeah. It's it's surprising to me, but I do believe that's coming. Yes, and when you talk about the ability to be agnostic, 
you know, uh, from the kind of cloud service. Um, I, I, I imagine there's a kind of a layer of abstraction, a product that abstracts that out. Um, obviously, it's going to add delays. I, I mean, is that is that how it would work? I think I think when you look at your architecture and what services you're going to use, regardless of your, you know, chosen cloud provider, the thing is not to get too attached to something that is uh, specific to that that particular provider, right? You have to be thinking that while I may not I may be here for years. At the same time, it might become cost prohibitive and I'll have to look elsewhere. Yeah. I think in our case, we've looked to, you know, be at a level of abstraction where we're basically able to move to other providers. There's one key area that AWS has that's like crack, and that is DynamoDB. This no NoSQL you know, concept is certainly available from others but it's not as easy to, to move as some of the other pieces we talked about, like um, you know your typical relational databases, if you still have those, or, or your web layer. Yeah, so I, I love uh, that terminology as well, the kind of these, uh, these functionalities that these cloud providers will provide you uh, that'll get you hooked, you know? Yeah. And then, you, then you're down that kind of spiral, you know, of yeah. uh, at what point do you break away? How do I stop, you know? How do I go to cold turkey, you know? Right, you have to be. You have to avoid stickiness, and it's tough because it's time to market as well, right? You have a balance between what can you afford to do and invest in, and uh, what what makes sense for the long run. And when you're yeah. talking about a startup, right, you have limited limited funds, but you could quickly, you know, build yourself into a corner. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, kind of moving further on along your career, you know, your recent success uh, with Mile Zero. Do you want to tell us about that success story? Well, it's a it's a story still continuing, so we'll see how it ends, you know. Um, but uh, so about 2014, I decided uh, Amazon had gone through a, a key journey, um, which uh, transportation provided. So we built out uh, a number of different aspects that you could think of them as Lego pieces that can be used in different geographies to achieve basically carrier services. So that included things like sort center technology, uh, which now Amazon has a, a variety of those that consolidate the flow of fulfillment products from multiple uh, fulfillment centers into a given market like New York City. We built out uh, last mile technology uh, that gave them the ability to do uh, delivery and ultimately provided a foray for some of the you know experimental um, last mile that they're doing with things like Prime now, mm. uh, and and we built out uh, a, a whole refactoring of line haul uh, called Roadrunner, which gave them the ability to you know um, create a continuous flow that would cut out hops inside of carrier networks. So really, to, to give them an end-to-end -end ability to act as a carrier. Now it doesn't always make sense to do it in all geographies because in some areas you're going to find opportunities, as in the U.S., they've used USPS as opposed to their own last mile because of cost. Mm. But once we built out that that uh, technology blueprint and, and set of services, I knew that Amazon was going to go into at least a five-year uh, rollout plan and uh, be focused on on really um, doubling down and getting that, uh, you know, taking advantage of that operationally across uh, the world. And so I said to myself, do I want to die at my desk or do I want to move on and, and do what I came here to do, which was to, to learn how to, to build out my own startup, an effective startup that could sustain itself, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what I, I chose to do. And uh, with a co-founder, we went out and uh, focused on building out a last mile uh, technology platform uh, for all. It started in 2014. We went through a variety of of uh, permutations. We initially, uh, surprisingly, did our first customer in UAE, uh, where there are no addresses, there are only geocodes. Wow. Uh, and uh, as things changed there, um, in terms of that particular customer, we came back and we were fortunate enough to uh, land a, a big engagement with Staples here in the US and then uh, Harvey Norman in Australia. Uh, and so, through those those customers and added on uh, Endeavor Drinks in Australia and some others, um, we built out a platform that basically does uh, carrier in the box for any customer. 
they can achieve a, a low cost end-to-end uh, -end delivery solution just by using our technology. And uh, it manages, you know, all of that complexity and handles what, what transportation really is, which is a series of exceptions. And it, right. it mitigates those for you and, and it allows you to achieve a very low cost delivery. About oh, early in 2019, we decided that to really um, expand and, and to get to the next level, you know, it was probably time to, to move from investment into uh, the sales side. Cool. We looked at a number of small startups that, that weren't great fits for us. Uh, of course, there are a lot of these companies that say, well, we'd love to have the team, but I don't know what that technology does. And we, we avoided those and we went with um, Capstone Logistics, which is just a fantastic company. They uh, have a, a huge network for, primarily they started in, in doing uh, warehouse services across the U.S. They have more than 500 partners in the domestic U.S. and uh, uh, began to, to start acquiring companies to fill in that end-to-end -end chain from manufacturer pickup through last mile delivery. And so prior to acquiring Mile Zero, they'd already acquired Load Delivered, which is a line haul broker and also a, a technology company that basically gave them intelligence in terms of the movement of, of freight called right. Logistical Labs and also purchased a, a company called Fiscal that allows them to uh, do transportation payments. And so as they added us, it became a natural where I started to see this pattern that I saw at Amazon, right? Now you have a solution that potentially a, uh, a partner could use uh, for one or multiple purposes and uh, start to, uh, you know, really hit this this area that there's a, a huge gap as we're seeing with retail today. So, yeah, excellent. So in terms of uh, building up that platform that you, you developed at, at uh, Mile Zero, was that from scratch or was it kind of bringing in integrating existing platforms? For the most part, it's it's all from scratch. We, we got the opportunity. We had just a tremendous uh partner in Signal Fire who were, you know, kind of our lead investor who were very hands-off and they gave us the opportunity instead of pushing us to, to acquire, you know, partners early on, gave us uh, room to, to really think. And I have a very senior team that have been doing, uh, working in this space for a long time. So we went back and we said, you know, let's think of this as a, a service platform, not a, a delivery platform. And we built it from a, a perspective of, of being able to handle any type of service and be very flexible and dynamic. And it's really scaled to, to handle all of these various uh, um, use cases that we've seen across these very disparate types of companies and, and products that we're delivering. Right. So again, I think the, the lesson learned there is if you already have gone th through this uh, area that you're, you're basically attacking, which is typical of a lot of startups, you know, take the time to, to build something that, that's going to work for the long haul as opposed yeah. to, you know, trying to go out there and, and get a, a few penny partners early on and, and become very beholden to them in terms of what you're building. Yes, that kind of complexity of, of relationships um, becomes something else you need to manage, I guess. You know, it's uh, and it's interesting that you had an investor that was able to kind of uh, give you give you the uh the space um you know the creative space to do what needs to be done you know yeah i think i think that uh that would took us longer probably to raise because it's hard you know at that point when we were raising it isn't what it was now you know that was the era of snapchat and everybody would get to the end of our presentation and say but i don't see how this does video chat well <laughs> or, or the other common thing would be i don't know and what kind of problem there is with transportation. You take the truck and you go to the customer and you drop it off. So it was right. very hard to explain the differences in terms of the, the mechanics of consolidation and, and yes. uh, reducing cost per unit. But we ended up with a very bright set of investors. Um, Playground was another one that was extremely supportive. I think if you find investors that, that favor technology, if you're a technology team, they're going to understand and listen to you and it becomes about explaining what it is you're building and getting them aligned in the vision now yes. it can't be unbounded you have to have a plan and you have to have a time when you're going to 
to go to market. So we had that. And, and where, where did that uh, kind of time to market uh, stake in the ground come from? Was that from, from your kind self or was it a kind of collective thing that? Uh, as part of the raise, you know, one of the things that we had was a clear plan. Um, I think that the plan was probably, you know, more optimistic than, uh, Always. <laughs> not, you know, in, in actuality. But you have a plan and, and it essentially is goes right along with the vision in, in terms of how you're going to implement it. You know, what yeah. type of team are you going to need? What types of phases of development are you going to do? And, and in our case, we had built a, a plan that was, first of all, phased in, in the sense that we were going to go after N number of small merchants and then the following year have an enterprise release for larger merchants. And mm. uh, we, did, we did basically follow that pattern. And as you alluded to earlier, the hard thing is to prevent, uh, find a way to effectively bring in requirements that benefit all. And again, just like with service teams, be able to say no to things that aren't part of that vision, although it might make the difference to retaining a partner. Yes. You have to be, you have to be ready to say no and fail for that partner so that you don't fail as a company. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a beautiful insight there, um, which kind of brings me on to uh, the, the other question. It's a nice segue into that, which is around, um, you know, uh, what are the lessons learned around uh, building a business uh, for an exit or not for an exit? You know, what's what's your, what's your kind of tips for chief technology officers and uh, technical leaders out there around that? I think regardless of exit, the first thing you have to do is is focus on are you solving a problem that needs to be solved? And then are you doing it in a way that's going to be, you know, cost effective, right? Because solving a problem, but, but coming up with a solution that, that makes no sense financially means that you're going to have to take investment dollars or, or have buy-in for an elongated time till the market adjusts. And certainly we've seen that with things like Uber, for example, and, and uh, with robotics and so forth, but that's a very tough path to follow. And at the same time, I think the other thing is that the, the problem you're solving, you, you shouldn't just be polishing an existing solution. It needs to be a step change if you're going to build a, a viable business uh, that's going to get uh, investment backing. So you can't go out there and just, uh, well, there have been companies that have done it, but you, you, you're much better off being the leader and saying, here's, here's what I see that already perhaps is done in the market you know, by hand or without automation that we could conquer. And here are the series of steps to get there. Mm. Then the next thing is to, to parcel it into a plan that you can execute on. And you have to factor in the challenges with the startup of being able to recruit and recruit fast enough to fill those, those roles to move aggressively for early stage companies. So there's yeah. just a series of different pitfalls you have to plan for. And of course, there are all of the un unpredictable things that happen like we're seeing now where investment capital may change. Uh, it may not be available. It may be available because you happen to be in an industry uh, that is in, in demand. But I look at all of those, those uh, companies that were based on travel and uh, on uh, you know everything from the Airbnbs and their derivative companies to the companies that are you know, basically providing marketplaces that are suffering right now. So you don't know what, what you can't control and yes. therefore you have to make every dollar you get last and you have to be able to, to uh, be highly efficient. Yeah. Okay. Coming back to the kind of Amazon story, what should technology leaders need to learn around embracing the approach that Amazon took around cutting costs uh, and doing things iteratively? Well, I think first of all, the unique thing about Amazon is they never feared going into an area that they didn't know, right? Because like we said in the last point, you'll learn if you can look beyond the existing solutions that are out there and you can find a, a solution that can be built in iterations and can be built differently, then you can make a decision to invest in it. Then it comes down to execution and, and how do you build the pieces that are critical? In other words, the prioritization of what are those essential pieces that have to be effectively delivered by milestone. Right. And then it's a matter of, you know, how do I do it so that I'm not constantly refactoring or rebuilding or, or having to, to start over because that's a, a tremendous cost. Um, so you need to build it right at each phase. You need to have the right level of talent for each of those. You need to also be willing to fail. 
at different points. Right. But don't fail the same way twice, I guess. What you want to <laughs> do is you want to learn from those failures and you want to incorporate those learnings so that you actually may get a step change and skip some of the other uh, series of iterations based on that learning. Okay. And this is that's an interesting point around having a culture of uh, acceptance of failure. Um, what you're saying is Amazon encouraged that? Well, I, I would hate to say that Amazon encouraged failure because that's going to kill my stock price. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I would say is that, uh, and it was a, it was an evolution, right? As I said uh, earlier, initially there was a much more punitive culture, just because of the seniority, I think, of leaders mm-hmm. uh, and technical leadership. But as as we got further along, it became quite obvious that each of these each of these failures that one particular team might make provided an insight that everyone could learn from. Beautiful. You know, an example of that would be, for example, we used to use, a, this was a, a very early on mistake I'd say we made. We used a, a third party company called Tibco and we used a, a multicast technology they had, which was basically a single leader would delegate uh, to other effective um, services so that they would have redundancy. And we would see you know, routinely under under load, that leader would die and, and the service would become stagnant. That was one of those early learnings that ultimately influenced Amazon to invest in its own technology and build out its own uh, um, multi, you know, multicast and multi-agent uh, technology. So hmm. those types of learnings can give you a, a jump on the entire market because you may be the only one in that area with that level of volume or that particular uh, segment wow. uh, solving that problem. Yeah, yeah. This is, I think it's quite difficult for a lot of technology leaders out there to kind of experiment, if I, it's what we're going to call it, is to, is to kind of try stuff out. And uh, here's, here's a tough question for you. So in terms of your leadership, how do you deal with the people that you have working uh, around you? And, uh, you know, how do you deal with them making a experimenting with something and it not quite working out? Well, I think first off, you want you want the communication there because on the big bets, you want to be taking the bet together. But there are times with large organizations where you have to just, you know, have a framework. In other words, whether that's some kind of a project management cycle like Agile, where, you know, here's the work we're going to go after for this particular cycle. But you'd like to, you'd like to have more of a long range perspective and be able to build these decisions into those larger cycles. Wow. Yes. Um, but communication is the first thing. I think the next thing is, you know, that many times you've hired these people because they're the experts in this area and you want to be able to give them the latitude to make these decisions. The last thing you want to do is, is see somebody come back to you and tell you, you know, six months ago, I told you we could have done this and we could have been first in this particular area, but we didn't have the guts to, to take the risk. Right. And again, it's the, it's creating that environment, uh, allowing these really smart boys and girls to, to be able to step up and say what they need to say and share their ideas. You know, um, it sounds like m- maybe some of your, uh, uh, you know, employees are kind of uh, listening into this, you know, hopefully there will be. Um, and and uh, And you're kind of providing... That, that kind of space for them. It sounds like it's been a huge success for you, Charles, you know? Um, well, it's been a lot of fun. I, and and I think the one thing you want to do if you've been in this game for as long as, you know, I have, is you want to, you want to leave that kind of uh, blueprint so that others follow it and they, they improve upon it, right? Today, every single day I learn something from, from others on the teams that I'm involved with. And uh, if you're directive, you're not going to get that learning. You're not going to get the full potential of the team. And I think that it's at all levels. It's at the the managers that roll up to you. It's at the individual levels, whether they're principals or whether they're entry level. You know, as I said before, ideas can come from anyone and you just have to be willing to listen and find the right way to, to funnel and focus them. Wow, beautiful. Excellent. Um, and uh, my kind of last set of questions is, is coming back, actually, full circle to these kind of high-performing teams. We started off in the games industry uh, where you were talking about the, the industry was kind of forced to have these high-performing tight teams. So in terms of the technology leaders out there, what would you say to the boys and girls out there in those roles? Uh, how do you create high-performing teams? What, what do you, what's your kind of tips on that front? 
Well, there's so much uh, to building a high performance team. You know, personalities are quite different. You have introverts, you have extroverts. Um, so building an effective team is chemistry uh, yeah. as much as it, it's anything else. And it's adjusting that chemistry as you start to see challenges, whether that is done, you know, through an interpersonal perspective, like one-on-ones, or whether it's adding and, and changing the teams periodically so right. that they all continue to cross-pollinate. Um, but I think that, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, it comes down to what are the problems that they're solving and, and what is the success that they're having doing that? Yes. You have to start with, is the problem that they're solving getting solved? And then you look at the byproducts. What else are you getting? What other benefits are you getting from that? Yeah. I've seen the, the, the problem I've seen with high performing teams in the past is stagnation. You have a problem that's been solved. You have a very senior team perhaps that's dedicated to it and they just start to relax and they become very comfortable and unmotivated. And all of a sudden that, that service becomes you know, ineffective just because of time. Yeah. And so creating that bias and that motivation um, at, at the individual level as well as the team level is important. And I, I do think that's why it's important for people to move, whether it's yes. especially engineers early on, they should go through two or three jobs in their first three years, three, uh, rather three to five years. Yes. These, yes. These days they might go through three in, in one year, but uh, that's not, that's not what I'd recommend. <laughs> You gain so much by changing organization that I think people should do that in their own career. Yes. And then you have teams that with more seasoned employees create that um, inner team movement uh, to, to maintain that type of, um, you know, uh, high caliber engineer and to give them opportunities. I think you have to focus on are, are we doing the right thing for the individual, whether that's hiring somebody or whether or not that's retaining somebody in the team. Yep. versus encouraging them to grow personally. Yes. It always pays, pays dividends, even if, if somebody leaves and, and contributes in some other way, whether it's to your company or another, you know, windfall. I, I love that. It's, that's a beautiful way of, I kind of imagine a flow within the organization. So nothing stagnates and uh, becomes rigid. You know, there's this agility and, uh, and dynamic movement of, of information, knowledge, skills, and, and then that kind of cross-pollinates as well within the organization. It, and one of the things you touched on there is that, you know, recommending people to kind of move from uh, job to job. Um, obviously, looking at your kind of career, you've you've done that in a very explicit, uh, I would say, um, you know, thought-out way. Um, being uh, back in my kind of electronics and software engineering days, I moved from organization to organization as well due to the fact that I was a contractor. And, uh, and it was amazing what you learned. And it was beautiful what you could then you know, share the failures as well as the successes. This worked really well and this didn't work so well, but maybe we can try this, you know? So yeah, I think think it is important. And and the final point on that is, is that I've heard of organizations where, you know, when they feel that somebody is ready to kind of move on, they, they actually help train them to potentially leave, you know? Um, which is a it's a quite of a, a paradigm shift in thinking, you know? So we're gonna train you, what do you wanna do? You know, you wanna be a, database wizard you know get it right we'll give you the training for that knowing perfectly well that's probably opening the door for them to to exit but you're investing in them and have you ever seen anything like that in your career i i i've seen it i've seen it more in terms of continuous learning um because you know if you're fearful of losing the employee that it's generally because you don't have the opportunity you have the wrong environment for employees to stay or yeah. your compensation so you as a manager, you should always be fighting for the individual in terms of compensation and and uh, opportunities. Um, and in terms of training, I think you, you should always be pushing, not just when the employee grows to a certain point and you, you know, you're getting him ready for some other job. Um, you should want him to move within the organization and, and to continue to improve the way that he thinks about things, even if it's not directly. Uh, tied to the job, if if you know, yes. that can be done through providing a, an external project. It can be by uh, loaning him to another organization internally. There are a variety of ways to do it, but I think that people want to be in those types of organizations. And um, even the people that leave, they're going to recommend people to your organization. So there are always going to be you know selfish reasons to do it. But if you just do it for the right reasons, it ultimately is like karma. It, it 
comes back and it benefits you. Yeah, I like that. It's uh, just do good, you know, give us gain, you know, provide yeah. and, and it will come back in some way. Excellent. Well, this has been really, really interesting uh, listening to you, Charles. Um, I've learned lots. I hope the audience have as well. What, what's, the, um, what's the biggest takeaway that you'd like to give our audience? Wow, that's, that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think there's a couple of things. One thing is, ultimately, every day ask yourself, is this what I should be doing? And what is it I really want to do? I think if you're not asking yourself to basically accomplish something that's historic, you're setting your bar too low because we only go through life once. So you should always be moving forward. And I think that's another reason I, you know, moved out of games after a certain point and out of various companies where I got comfortable is because I said to myself, you know, what am I doing? I'm, I'm not, I'm not improving myself, whether that's by, you know, challenging myself or by what I'm delivering. And so um, I will say in retrospect, maybe I've I've hurt the world two times. Games <laughs> in terms of what I've seen from my kids being so absorbed in games versus the rest <laughs> of the world. And now perhaps with Amazon in terms of uh, what that's done to other retailers. But you can't be you can't hold yourself responsible <laughs> for how your deliveries are, are uh you know, are used, but you should hold yourself responsible for continuously improving. Yes, beautiful. And thank you for that, Charles. Great bit of advice there. And uh, well, hopefully we'll speak again sometime and find out where how you're doing with Mile Zero and how that turns out. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you very much.